Hey, you're listening to Continental Drift Student Spotlights, where I present you with interviews I've done with Muhlenberg students, faculty, alumni, and even people outside of the Muhlen bubble. All of this is my way of trying to collect stories about how COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter have affected the people important to me and probably important to you too. You can get more updates about my show on Instagram at continentaldrift.wmuh or you can listen to my radio show where I air these interviews live every Monday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on 91.7 FM, or go to wmuh.org. Again, that's every Monday, 8 to 10 p.m. But that's not why we're here. We're here for these stories. And thank you so much for listening to them. Today, I've got Amisha with me. So, Before we get started, I wanted to real quick say that I chose Amisha to be on my show because she is a fountain of knowledge and amazing insight on anything we've ever talked about. And I felt like any of her experiences would be very valuable to share. And I wanted to specifically focus on her abroad experience because she did study abroad this past year. So that's why we're sitting here together virtually over Zoom today. So, Amisha, do you think you could tell us a little bit about yourself that you feel like our listeners should know? Yes, and thank you for calling me a fountain. I've (laughs) never gotten that compliment before. (laughs) Um, As Michelle said, I'm Amisha. I'm a rising senior at Muhlenberg, which feels very weird to say. I'm Punjabi and Bengali, originally from outside Detroit, which is where I am virtually coming to you from. But I also spent the majority of my adolescence in India and China, which was its own crazy experience. Mm -hmm. And my favorite thing to do during quarantine has been to watch old movies. Any movies recently? Uh, Yeah, I watched Dilto Bagalhe, which is way longer than I remember it being. Mm -hmm. But But very fun. (laughs) Very silly. (laughs) So I I think we talked a little bit about this before we even scheduled this meeting about how, you know, going abroad for you is very different from someone else that's never stepped out of the U.S. Like, you've lived outside of the U.S. for a a period of time. But I still wanted to focus specifically on how you studied abroad this last two semesters until the pandemic required you to return home to the States. So could you give us an idea of what that experience was like, you know, before receiving that news? And then what was it like after transitioning back home? Yeah, um, so I had planned to spend my entire junior year abroad. So I was, uh, in the fall semester, I was in London, and then Mm -hmm. in the spring, I was in Dublin. Mm -hmm. London was amazing, incredible, and as much of a typical abroad experience as you can imagine. You know, I explored, I traveled, I took classes. COVID-19 wasn't really a factor Mm -hmm. in my fall experience at all. That was just it was a dream. It was mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, the spring, I think, was when it started to feel different. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got to Dublin, COVID-19 was kind of already in, in the air, in the news, in the air figuratively, I should say. <laughs> um, 
So it was interesting. I think the only people that were outwardly showing concern about the virus before it was this immense pandemic were the people I knew from Muhlenberg and mm. one of my roommates who was a Canadian. Mm-hmm. I didn't really hear about it a lot from the Irish students on campus or the other European students that I had met. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when things got bad in Italy, that's when things started getting more serious in Ireland, there were more rumors floating around. People were talking about it more. There were rumors that everyone was going to have to stay in their rooms on campus for a month. Mm. There were rumors that people on campus already had the virus and we should have like month's supply of food and water in our rooms. Mm-hmm. And while all that was going on, I felt personally very removed from the situation because our generation has lived through a few different illnesses and big viruses so I wasn't sure how different this one was how concerned I was supposed to be Mm -hmm. which I guess is funny in hindsight and Mm -hmm. incorrect Um, but I would hear things from my friends on campus in Dublin like oh my gosh I can't find any toilet paper the Mm -hmm. grocery stores don't have any but then Mm -hmm. two days later when I would go to the grocery store there was tons of toilet paper Mm -hmm. so it was really difficult for me to process how concerned I was supposed to be or if the possibility of being sent home was even real. Yeah. Um, So the transition back to the States was when all the stress and the fear and all the craziness kind of hit me Mm -hmm. because that's when everything became a whirlwind experience. I think Mm -hmm. Um, the week that Muhlenberg was sending its students home, I Mm -hmm. think we got an email on like Monday saying, Mm -hmm oh, everyone has to be out by Saturday because of the virus, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting that email in Dublin and saying, oh, that must be so stressful. Like, you only have a week to pack up, mm-hmm. whatever. Fast forward to that Thursday at about 3.45 in the morning, mm-hmm. my professor had to wake me up and tell me that I needed to get a flight home for the next day, Friday. What? Because the borders were closing. Yeah, it was so that I week. ended up at home. I ended up at home before the Muhlenberg students, which I thought was hilarious. Um, But everything got crazy then. I remember my cab to the airport from campus. The driver said, you're like my fifth person going to the airport today. And it was like six in the morning. Mm -hmm. He was like, what's going on? Why is this happening? So Mm -hmm. there was still a level of some people weren't concerned and some people were. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't it still hadn't reached its like global pandemic level that it is that now yeah if that makes sense yeah yeah um, that does but I really wasn't stressed I really wasn't stressed until I was in the airport because mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was standing in a pre-immigration line that was like hours longer than it normally was mm-hmm. packed like sardines with these people and debating whether or not I should put my mask on because I heard people coughing. I knew if I want to protect myself, my best bet is to put this mask on. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm a South Asian. Mm-hmm. I'm at a strange airport. Mm-hmm. I'm standing in line to get let onto the plane. And I'm supposed to cover half my face. Mm-hmm. That goes against everything I've been taught my entire life about how to act in an airport when mm-hmm. you're brown. Mm-hmm. So that's when everything got really stressful. And then I was building things up in my head as my anxiety is wont to do. So I was like, 
What if they don't let me on the plane? What if they don't mm -hmm. let me off the plane? Mm -hmm. What if someone sees that I used to live in China and then I get detained? So all of these things were really building up, but I was lucky. My travels were seamless. I had mm -hmm. a layover, a second flight, nothing happened. My bags were the first onto the belt when I landed in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I got home, everything was fine. It was after that where the line started being five or six hours long and it got a lot harder for people to come home. So I'm very fortunate, but that's yeah. a little taster of my experience. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of that, especially what you said about, you know, being South Asian in an airport. That is something that I've felt as well as a South Asian. Mm -hmm. And so I think I haven't had the experience of being in an airport recently because ever since Muhlenberg had us sent home, I've been at home. I have not traveled anywhere. So it was very valuable to hear that. And so talking more about the South Asian identity um, a little bit, I guess you've kind of answered this question about, like, do you feel that there's a difference then, let's say, within the situation or outside of the situation, like beyond it, um, if there's a difference between being South Asian while outside of the States abroad versus being South Asian in America, what does that look like yeah. to you? I think the biggest difference for me that I felt, and obviously prefacing this answer by saying that I personally identify as a South Asian American woman. Mm -hmm. So my experiences have everything to do with that identity and all of my other experiences. So definitely not generalizing on the full South Asian experience in those places. Mm -hmm. But the biggest difference I felt was living in the UK versus living in the States. Mm -hmm. My time in Dublin was so short mm -hmm. uh, to explore what being South Asian in Ireland means. The only South Asians I met in Ireland were either from Canada or from South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, so I definitely can't speak to that. And part of me actually wishes that I had been in London in the spring just to see what it would have been like mm -hmm. Um, I think the differences with COVID as another factor would have been much more palpable, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. just from my own like morbid curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, but just being in the UK when I was, which happened to be right smack in the middle of Brexit, mm -hmm. was really interesting. And I think the biggest difference between being a South Asian American in America and one in UK uh, is the history. Mm -hmm. And when I say history, I'm not referring to colonial history, although everything I'm about to say is rooted in that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But when I mean history, I mean the amount of time South Asians have been a part of and an influence on the culture in the UK. Mm -hmm. There's this level of familiarity there uh, mm -hmm. that people have just general knowledge about they see holidays and religion and food. Everyone has had Indian food. You can get Indian food everywhere. Um, people will have been to an Indian restaurant and a Pakistani restaurant and a Sri Lankan restaurant. You know, there's less conflation and much more general knowledge there. That was really shocking to me. Um, mm -hmm. Growing up in Michigan, which has tons of South Asians. I mean, I had lots of Daisy friends, but people still didn't have general knowledge about our culture. Mm -hmm. um, even my time at Muhlenberg, I've met people who don't know what a Sikh is or have never heard mm -hmm. of Diwali or have never had Indian food. And so mm -hmm. that was such a stark difference between 
being in America and being in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the best example I have of that is I was visiting a friend of mine who's also South Asian, but British in mm-hmm. Birmingham. And the public bus, this was right around Diwali, mm-hmm. the public bus had an ad from the city of Birmingham saying, like, wishing everybody a happy Diwali. Wow. Like, when you're driving down the freeway yeah. in America, you might see a Merry Christmas billboard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was for Diwali. Mm-hmm. So I had never seen that before, and she did not understand why I was so shocked. Mm-hmm. But I was like, "What do you mean? What do you yeah. mean you're allowed to have that on a bus, and yeah. people know what it means?" Yeah. Um, and that was a wonderful kind of shock. But I think one of the other differences I experienced was a difference in the kind of hostility, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of my time in the states the hostility that I personally face on like a day-to-day basis, excluding extreme situations is more rooted in microaggressions than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the UK for me, the energy itself was more hostile. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that I was there in the middle of Brexit. I was there when Brexit was scheduled for Halloween. Yeah. Um, by the time Brexit actually happened, I was in Dublin. Uh, but even just getting looks from people on the tube or on the bus, it just felt more uncomfortable. I felt more different. I felt like I stood out. Um, but what that energy gave rise to was all these different amazing theater performances I was able to go see that starred South Asians and looked at British politics from a South Asian lens that took traditional plays and twisted them and put them in India and made them talk about interracial relationships and colonialism and things like that. So the politics there that I was experiencing in a more hostile light, Mm -hmm. I guess, Mm -hmm. um, were also the reason that I got to see myself represented on a platform that I would never have gotten to see here in the States. Yeah. I think to wrap up that answer, the uh best thing I have is Riz Ahmed describes living in the UK as living in the empire. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to America and the UK, Mm -hmm. America being this current empire, but just without the colonial history with South Asia that the UK, the former empire has. I think that was the biggest difference. Yeah. Sorry, that was very long winded. (laughs) No, do not apologize at all. Again, everything that I needed to hear, especially that <laughs> last part about where you say, uh, where, where you said about watching or seeing your representation on the stage. I feel like it is definitely worth mentioning the fact that you create your own representation on campus or you have with the Unchained Theater Collective and your contribution to the Sedehi Diversity Project So Mm -hmm. both groups, as a quick summary, is that they both create space for minority voices on a predominantly white institution's campus. Were you involved in anything like that while you were abroad? Yeah, um, I was involved. So in Dublin, one of the reasons I was so excited to go to Dublin and be at like a big university, which was seemingly the opposite of Muhlenberg, which is very Mm -hmm. small, Mm-hmm. was that I wanted to join clubs and meet people in that kind of environment because mm-hmm. I'd never been to that kind of environment before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so as you said, the Unchained Theater Collective and the Sedihi Diversity Project both center minority voices. Uh, and while I was in Dublin, I was able to join a group called Breaking Borders, mm-hmm. and they had a similar goal. It was less performance-minded. I think my experiences on Muhlenberg have a lot more to do with theater mm-hmm. than they did in Dublin. Mm-hmm. But it was a place on campus where I was able to meet and interact with other students of color, many of whom were from Ireland and had lived there their whole lives. My regular everyday experiences on campus were a lot like Muhlenberg, where most of my classes were all white. Most of the people I saw on campus were all white. So joining Breaking Borders was really amazing for me to find a home on campus where I felt comfortable, where I could have the conversations that I'd been wanting to have. Mm-hmm. Because at Breaking Borders was where I was able to sit down with people and break down what the word home meant and talk about why, as a South Asian American, if someone asks me if I'm from America, I would typically answer yes. Mm-hmm. But if you ask a person of color that's from Ireland, if they're from Ireland, in my experience, mm-hmm. most of them had a bit more of a complex answer. Mm-hmm. So differences like that and differences in racial issues where my friends in Breaking Borders would be able to talk about the police brutality that they hear about that happens in America on a daily basis and the horrible, horrible things that happen here. Yeah. And we don't hear as much about Ireland. So. We, they were able to talk about and process the things they were hearing about where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I was able to talk about things that were happening to me on campus and in Dublin and in Ireland and in Europe, mm-hmm. which is where they were from. And we were able to come together and see the similarities in our experiences and mm-hmm. also clarify things for each other, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it, it so definitely, definitely one of the highlights. Yeah. I wanted to point out what you just said about how this was your place to have these conversations and process these different emotions and experiences that you've had with people that have either perceived it or how you've perceived it or how you've both experienced it together. And I think it is very important that you just mentioned the police brutality that has been happening. I think it would be really oblivious to have this conversation and not touch on the fact at all that, you know, George Floyd, George Floyd's name, Ahmaud Arbery's name, mm-hmm. Rihanna Taylor's name, like all these names that, all these hashtags, all these movements that are starting up and then people turn to minority voices and ask, okay, like, how can I help? How can I be involved? And that's very important. But I think what you just said is an example of how in your own life, how you can take action sometimes means investing yourself in these kinds of conversations, whether it be in clubs, whether it be in these events that you can start up so that you can, like, what is the word? You can immerse yourself into processing all of this and taking that time to process it, you know, as opposed to pushing it aside. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I say this about the Unchained Theater Collective all the time, and I think it applies to Breaking Borders, and the diversity project and literally anywhere else on campuses or in the world where people want to have these quote unquote uncomfortable conversations about horrific and real things that are happening in the world people like to use the excuse of like oh 
nobody was talking about it or like I didn't want to bring it up or whatever. And I feel like people say about the Unchained Theater Collective that the founders of that group created a space and they were the ones who discovered the people of color on campus who wanted to have conversations and wanted to perform. But I think the reality is, well, I know the reality is people who want to have uncomfortable conversations, people who want to perform and represent and Mm -hmm. do all of these amazing things are everywhere Mm -hmm. and they just need a platform. Mm -hmm. That's it. Nobody that is starting these clubs is discovering or creating these people and these conversations. They exist everywhere. So for people who have a hard time having those conversations or feel scared or feel like there is no place to have those conversations, you just have to show up. Mm -hmm. Like someone puts a poster up and says, come to this showcase, show up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's been a theme in a lot of my interviews in a, in a variety of ways about showing up and the different ways that you can do that, whether it be attending an event or even, you know, donating when you can, redistributing wealth, like that is a way to show up as well, just tangible action. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that you could like shed light on that and clarify that to listeners. Uh, but we are at our last minute. So do you think you could give mm-hmm. a closing message that you'd like to leave with anyone listening? Yeah, I I guess I just want to say I hope everyone is staying safe and taking care of themselves. There's a lot of horrible things happening in the world, but I think the best way to be an ally and a good citizen and all of that is to take care of yourself first and make sure you're in a good place. Ava DuVernay, who is an amazing, amazing filmmaker, she tweeted the other day that for years she's had this note on her phone mm-hmm. and she updates it every night with three things, three good things that happened to her that day. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really lovely habit and I've started doing it and mm-hmm. it's helped me hone in on and focus on the positive aspects of my life in mm-hmm. this scary time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, it's been really nice. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of that. This was an amazing conversation that I hope helped you as well just talk through all of this. So thank you again. And that wraps up my interview with Amisha. Amisha, thank you so much for taking the time to go through your abroad experience all over again, especially because I know that it's not easy to revisit these memories. You know, I even I can't really even think about what that last week of school was like before we went home. So I'm so grateful that we had this opportunity to record the conversation. And for all of you listening, I am just amazed with the reaction that these spotlights and interviews have gotten. And the people that are listening, I, I'm really thankful that you're taking the time to hear these different stories because each and every person that I've talked to deserves more than this interview. They truly deserve a huge stage to broadcast these stories even further. And I'm really grateful that we even have these few people here to listen and maybe carry forward the stories that you're listening to because who knows how it's going to impact you or impact the next person that you talk to. So please keep sharing this podcast, maybe follow it on Spotify or send it to a friend, especially if you see another friend's name as one of these spotlights. And if you can think of anyone that you feel like, hey, 
this person deserves a spotlight and definitely has a story for Michelle, send them over to me. I am always here to listen to any story and just casually record it, you know? So you can find more updates about this show on continentaldrift.wmuh on Instagram. And I can't wait for you to listen to the next episode.